0: So tonight I'd just like to share some thoughts on the topic of the the unity of wisdom and compassion. Or you could say, uh, wisdom needs compassion and compassion needs wisdom for uh, completeness. And luckily they both uh, naturally turn into each other. So it's not something to worry about. Um, So wisdom... We could talk about the view, the understanding, you could say, of, of emptiness, of the non-separateness, uh, that no thingness exists, nothing has separate, intrinsic existence. This uh, what I read from Ajahn in the other night, and I'll, I'll read it again just as an example. Um, it can just on its own as an idea or an incomplete understanding can converge into disconnect, right? Kind of a weird, and I'll talk more about that. <clears throat> but it gets to seem kind of like uh, nothing matters, you know, nihilism. And compassion without wisdom is when we can um, just not be able to hold it, turn away in fear, drown in the grief or try to act from compassion out of an idea of a should, but without the deep understanding of wisdom, even with our best intentions, the actions can start to come from our desperation or fear or anger. And so the two support each other. So I just want to talk a bit about that. So, <clears throat> and then talk really more about how our practice here is. The most powerful way we are cultivating and developing compassion—we've I mean, talked about wisdom a lot. <clears throat> so, this sense of when we say well, a phrase, I use a lot, is that you know, awareness or mindfulness doesn't care, I meaning it doesn't care what it's mindful of. I remember that quotation actually. Um, Winnie mentioned it last night. I'll read it again briefly. You see how just hearing the sense, it's both quite beautiful, but the mind that's just hearing it without really the gut-level understanding can go, huh? That doesn't sound so great to me. Where Ajahn Jumnian, where at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is recognized as simply mind and matter. An empty process arising and passing away of its own. A perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. So, often people say, on one level that can be quite inspiring. On the wisdom level as we're touching that potential of that peace that non-doing but the the old thinking mind can come in or when it's an incomplete understanding which it is let's face it for most of us most of the time and often people express well if nothing matters what do we practice for if nothing matters when we when we awaken we're not going to care about anybody or anything we're not going to be motivated to do anything we're going to not enjoy that's a big question you know, if everything's all equal, we won't appreciate nature, we won't appreciate beauty, there won't be love, there won't be compassion, just some big, dull, empty blob of existence, you know, I'm not really so interested in that. Or people then really quite seriously think this sounds actually alien, you know, inhuman, Uh, more than just a little uninteresting, a cold, empty void, Indifference, all those things, right? So that's one side, a kind of like a the mind thinking about it. That's separate from the experience, because in the experience you don't think, "Oh, this is just a dull blob." You oh, go, "Wow, this is really free." But thinking about it, these can come up. Or the other side, which is again the incomplete. It's like you could, as Padmasambhava talks about, the view and action where we fall into the view, the view, the not the idea but the gut level, real understanding of, you know, the emptiness, of separate meanness of things, of this non-interference, this ability to just be with whatever, with this peace and spaciousness. But it can fall into what's called falling into emptiness, you could say. Where it becomes a visopadma says, the view, this real understanding, this wisdom that frees the heart and mind is the most important thing. However, do not let your action slip in the direction of the view. If it does, you will fall into the evil views of demons prattling on about how goodness is empty, evil is empty. That sense of, it's all empty. Awareness doesn't care. I can do whatever I do and I'm free and it's empty and I'm creating no karma so it just doesn't matter. Have you ever heard or read that kind of thing? It can seem like a logical outcome and that's not, that's not what the Buddha is saying at all. <laughs> Stephen quote, bachelor quotes Nagarjuna. Buddhas say emptiness is the relinquishing of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. When emptiness becomes a view that is held to, this is the Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche describing that. It is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material concrete reality. In other words, sad to see those of us stuck in samsara. But far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice, through the ways of skillful means, but those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge, since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. Now, don't get scared. I know that kind of sounds like some of what we've been saying, <laughs> but it's a one-sided, limited. It's when it's taken up as a view, not one's really gut understanding experience. So then we come. To, so that's a kind of a, a falling into emptiness. That is not the wisdom of seeing things as they are the wisdom of the Buddha but it's really in my limited experience but in everyone I've seen and talked to as well if we simply continue with our mindfulness practice as we're doing in moments where we're really experiencing touching recognizing Various aspects of, like, the uh, equanimity of mind, as I read from Ajahn Jimnian, or the sense of, you know, in a moment when all thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations are arising and passing, and there's no need to fixate on anything or pull out anyone as important, you know. When we really are experiencing that, not just thinking about it, in those moments, the natural. The natural response of the mind or heart, if a response is necessary, from the mind that's empty of the, of the obsession with self, is the response of compassion, of metta, of appropriate response to circumstances. Exactly because all of our energy is not bound up in the relentless, obsessive self-referencing that goes on. Again, I'm talking moment to moment. This isn't like we have to think about way down the road one time, one big blowout. But moment to moment. And just, you can think for yourself. Notice over the days, in times when you're having one of those moments where you're not having, okay, you're not having one of those moments, but one of those moments is occurring, and there's awareness where just the presence with the isness of things right we've talked about that a lot there's no big sense of me you're just sitting drinking tea taking a walk looking at the leaves whatever you're doing just present does a thought of harming does it would it arise does it make any sense If someone comes by and you can tell that they're sad and it's just this moment of just pure isness, does any kind of resistance or aversion or blame come up? It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't come up. It's not like we have to somehow manufacture compassion. But when in that moment... Um, the energy is freed from this need to protect and fear, this relentless self-referencing. That's the natural response when faced with suffering of a being or of ourselves. The the real uh, experience, the real understandings that come to us over and over and over in all different ways of the emptiness and not self just deepen our uh, experience and the mind's tendency to move into compassion rather than fear and anger. A couple of quotations from Stephen Batchelor from his, um, the introduction to his translation of um, verses from the center of Nargajana, but he's talking here about Shantideva, who was a teacher in India, and in, when was Shantideva a guy, 800s or something? 7th century. The seventh century in India. And he's the author of a very, uh, really one of the most famous Tibetan texts, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. So, Stephen, who he also translated that text. So, he said, when Shanti closed sense of self dissolved, his closed sense of self dissolves, and this can just be in a moment. We all know this. I talked about that last week. He did not vanish into an abyss of nothingness. In fact, He says, to be empty, to know emptiness, is to no longer be full of oneself. And when one is no longer full of oneself, then that not only, this again still Stephen, that insight into emptiness does not only change the way one views the world and oneself, it also transforms the way one feels about the world and beings and oneself the heart is open to the anguish of others, prompting a spontaneous longing to assuage their suffering. And at the same time, there's the wisdom that can acknowledge the somewhat irrational nature of the idea that one could save all others as a limited human being. So there's the sense of the wisdom of the vastness and the natural deepening response of the heart that's Touches the anguish of others because it can no longer afraid to touch the anguish of ourselves. And so, the famous quotation from Shanti Deva: "When I've done something for the sake of another, I don't feel amazement or conceit. It is just like having fed myself. I look for nothing in return." That's really more the sense one is no longer so full of oneself and what opens up from that is actually the ability to be more tender with oneself and others but with the eye of wisdom we can recognize more clearly what needs to be done if there's anything that can be done there's a story i use this often that i heard on the radio but i've been i've been told it's true A few years ago, when a new, I think the Millennium Bridge is called, opened in London over the Thames River. It's like a walking bridge, it was a big deal. And so, what the radio was describing, how I think the first day or something that it opened, hundreds of people were walking across. It was a big, you know, big, uh, you know, celebration kind of fancy thing. Anyway, so many people were walking across the bridge that it started shaking and wobbling, like a little back and forth, back and forth. And so they were telling this story as an as a example of what was called um, gone, gone, that's why I write things down, I think I know, and then it's gone. Oh well, it's gone. But anyway, it's a kind of rational, enlightened self-interest, something like that. Rational self-interest, that that, if you have, if you act out of enlightened self-interest, that will be for the good of all. And they were using it in, in relationship to economic policies that led to the 2008 good of all <laughs> occurrences in the economy, um, so anyway, all these people are walking across the bridge. It starts to shake. So everyone enlightens self-interest. So everyone acts. It starts to lean to one side. So every- Oh, yeah, right. So everyone steps to the other side. They all step to the other side, all 400 people. So that completely throws the whole thing off balance. So each single person meaning well, but from the limited view of my self-interest, you can only see so far. So you all do the same thing. Can't take in the big picture, which the wisdom of emptiness is more able to do. You know, It's just a simple example, but that's kind of how it works. So I want to... Oh, yes, and the other side of if we slip... From, from Pama Sambhava's quote, where he says, don't let your view slip In the Don't let your actions slip in the direction of the view. Acting from the view, nothing matters. But on the other hand, if you let your views slip in the direction of actions, other words, if you act without having the view, the understanding of emptiness, even when we're trying to act in the best possible way, like walking on the bridge, we can't see clearly. We can start acting from what we think is compassion, and it may be for a while, But the depth of the intention, we can't keep it up by willpower. Quotation from the Dalai Lama. Ah, yes. He says compassion, and he's Mr. Compassion, right? Compassion must be derived from our insight into the emptiness of inherent self. This is where the vast meets the profound. Without this unity, we can fall into despair. He says, with wisdom, knowing that people's suffering is avoidable, that it is uh, surmountable. Now, to me, that sounds depressing, but he's saying knowing that from the wisdom of emptiness, our empathy for their, for our inability to pull ourselves out leads to a more powerful compassion. Once we really see that there's no me to protect. Compassion, there's nothing to do but compassion for all beings. That's just what arises. But without that wisdom, this is the Dalai Lama, although our compassion may be strong, it is likely to have a quality of helplessness or even despair. Have you ever experienced that? Just in the sense of when we're faced with what comes at us every day here, never mind the world, it's something that I... as part of one of the ongoing questions and um, examinations, you know, of my life, part of my practice, exploration all these years. I'm nowhere close to really getting it, but I keep on exploring and being inspired about it. Really, the question of the question of compassion to wisdom. How can wisdom help us, help compassion? How can we continue to open again and again in this complex world of so much beauty and so much suffering, of so much tenderness and so much horror? I mean, that's my experience of the world, and sometimes more one and sometimes more the other. But how do we Just listening to, and I'm going to spare you, but just listening to the news any given day. Sometimes I go run through a whole series of things, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I don't think there's any need for it. We all have our own. But just listening to the news, huge world global horrors, small individual cruelties and violence and bigotry and ignorance. I mean, take your pick. Yes, there's beautiful things too. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to just be one-sided. But talking about compassion means we're talking about suffering. And so some days it's like, how can I find the courage and the the spaciousness and of heart and mind and the wisdom just to sit here and listen for 10 minutes you know some days i have it some days there's a real sense of connectedness the hearts really touched. some days it's like just oh my god it's so overpowering and everything in me wants to shut down and some days i don't turn it on you know and i'm not saying there's a right or a wrong but that's the question how do we keep opening? How do we find the courage to keep reconnecting with the tender heart, the heart that's willing to, to just drop into, with tenderness, our own suffering and not go to hatred or despair or fear or indifference? I mean, sometimes it'll go there. You know, I'm, that's not always in our control. We all know that. But there's times we can notice you know, there's a little choice. Do I let myself connect with this or not? And really starting to notice how do we keep finding that, that wisdom, that courage, that, that tenderness over and over and over again. To me, that's kind of the whole koan of practice. The wisdom and the compassion feed each other and cycle around together. And as one gets deeper and more powerful, so does the other. But as Winnie said so eloquently last night, it's not linear. Also, we can't assess. And everything else she said, <laughs> which I hope you remember. So, how do we find the strength, the wisdom to be with the difficult, to be with the unwanted? So I want to talk a little bit about um, actually just what compassion is in terms of a mental factor, a mental quality. In starting, in terms of our practice here, together, here, not, not theoretical really quite specific to what we're doing. And I'm sure you know this is not news to any of you. That, okay, so definition of compassion, really the heart, the mind, the state of heart and mind, that an in, in, in empathy with suffering, any kind of suffering, physical, mental, emotional. Some actual uh, translation is the tender quivering of the heart quivering of the heart in response to suffering. Meeting the suffering with an open presence, not shut off, not pulled back, not judging. Sounds like mindfulness, right? Yeah. Now, sometimes, often, compassion is spoken of as, it's not just that you sit there and feel nice, oh, poor suffering, but it's actually the motivation to act. The impulse, that that deep urge that Stephen Batchelor was talking about to alleviate the suffering of others, which manifests in that, that deep intention of bodhicitta that we talked about the other day, that, that is a very strong motivation in some traditions to you know, go through the whole path of awakening in order to come back and be present to alleviate the suffering of all beings, a vast motivation. We don't have to start there. But even if you think of compassion as needing as an action to alleviate, in our understanding of the way the Buddha taught, all action, the seed of action is intention, right? We've talked about that, that movement of mind, heart, that leads to action. That little uh, you know, that comes uh, informed by whatever are the qualities in the <laughs> mind, in the heart at that moment that motivate action so since all actions the seed of all action is intention and so the seed of compassion is in the intention and so here in practice here is the perfect place where we begin to recognize it's really the key to recognize not so much what's happening but how the heart and mind in any particular moment is meeting and responding to what's arising. So here we're talking about compassion, which is that open heart-mind connected to suffering. So when some aspect of suffering comes, it's not that we have to fix it, but where we're really deepening in compassion is in this, how the mind and heart in this moment is simply meeting this particular suffering. You don't have to evaluate, is it a big enough suffering? It's just a stupid suffering compared to everybody else's in the world and so it doesn't count. No, that's dosa. That's aversion. But this is really, this is not just a laboratory, this is the cultivation of compassion just as much as wisdom. The Dalai Lama again, talking about bodhicitta, deep compassion, and how does it develop. And he said that Real compassion, true compassion develops through deep insight into what suffering is. Yes, there is no way around that one. Deep insight into what suffering is. And guess how he says this arises. Just take a guess. It arises by focusing, by opening to, by being present with our own experience of suffering nowhere else and as this goes on again you know opening closing opening closing but as this deepens as we learn as this becomes more the more kind of natural response there's times that the compassion strengthens from just being with our own experience with tenderness with openness and you you may find times when it just naturally strengthens and this is a dalai lama again into a sense of empathy, connectedness with other beings through compassion. This is how compassion is a Brahma-vihara, a divine abiding, just like Metta. All beings suffer at some point in their lives, all beings. And compassion is this quality of measureless heart and mind that just by touching, open presence with the suffering, with an open, tender heart and mind, without judgment, we practice this. Without holding, it moves into, out of our own particular suffering, becomes the kind of, the, the, is our particular opens into the universal. And this is why the difficult times of retreat, and life too, but we're talking about retreat, but it's the same in life, no different. Why they're so important. Now as Winnie was talking a lot last night, it was great, we can't judge what's going on. But it's not just that we go through the difficult ones, we say, okay, 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 I know I'm learning, you know, until it's over. You can't tell in the middle. We can't. But often, the, you look back later, maybe you will. I can look back. The places one retreats that I by far learn the most, not in an intellectual way, where the most change happened, the most opening, the most wisdom, is always the most difficult times. Because that's where the wisdom has to come together with the compassion with what's really happening. With the the gut level, you know, I'm out of here. But there's nowhere to go. So, (laughs) So you can beat your head against the wall or you can open. Well, we'll beat our head for a while until we see it doesn't work. But this... I'm really serious, though. I don't want to make a joke of this. (laughs) This is really, these parts of the retreat, just as in our life, are so invaluable. It's really what it's about. And there's no way around it. We don't get to, I think when you said it very funny last night, but we don't get to really, oh yeah, I really get suffering. I'm open to suffering. I'm not resisting it. I really understand compassion like that, like the way I said it, you know. Yeah, right. It just doesn't happen without this deep grokking of it. It doesn't mean we won't fight it. But that's how the compassion and attention develops right where we are. And so it takes a lot of courage and trust, and you're all doing it here. I just, just want to keep on supporting that you're doing that and give you a sense of that. We start where we are. It's the only place compassion and wisdom start to develop. But to, to me, the essence of... This is me. This is my own personal take. This isn't from the Buddha. The, my, the essence of metta, the essence of compassion to where they start, is with just simple connection. The heart and mind just openly, completely connecting, just sinking into what's happening. Without a so-that, without fear, aversion, greed. Again, that sounds like mindfulness. It's not much different. But that connection, that heart and mind, when it's connected with suffering in that way, is what opens to compassion. But as we all have seen, that's not, for most of us, most of the time, that's not our go-to mode. The Dalai Lama, again, someone asked him about why it looks like there's such a lack of compassion in human society. And he said, perhaps we just pay less attention in ourselves to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less in ourselves. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, fueling it, reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy attention and reinforcement to compassion and caring they would definitely be stronger so first i want to again reinforce that's what we're doing here noticing anger is different from reinforcing it okay but the first the 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 shift is you know when we're not aware when we're in our habit modes it often can feel when we're faced with some really difficult suffering, whether it's our physical pain, or aging, or grief, or trauma, or external injustice, whatever is going on, often it's as if, at least I see this in myself, it's it's unconscious, as if I trust aversion to protect me, or anger to protect me, or fear to protect me. That's where my mind goes. And What is aversion? The essence of aversion in a moment is the mind pulls back from experience. Don't want to be there. Don't want to be there. Whether it's fear and goes away out of fear or whether it's anger and aggression, it still pulls away from the experience and then, you know, blames someone else. Whereas the essence of compassion starts with this connection, as Joko Beck says, can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? That's all. Don't have to do anything else. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? The answer might be no way. <laughs> but you can be aware of that. That's already different. Seeing the jumping away, the closing down, the shutting off as if to protect. Payment Children has a, a lovely image. Well, I thought it was lovely. I mean, she's, she talks a lot about compassion and that it really restart where we are just the image of how we we close to protect ourselves we think we're protecting our vulnerable self from suffering we shut down like a sea anemone you know sea anemones these sea animals with tendrils and they they close like that if you're getting, you get getting touch them you know they close up like that and she has the the lovely image of it's closing to protect its tender and vulnerable heart And so we think, you know, as best we know, with the aversion and the fear, the shutting down, the tensing up, the resisting suffering, we're protecting our tender and vulnerable heart. But we're not really. You know, the more we protect, it takes an enormous amount of energy. It shuts out the potential of connection and tenderness. And again, Pema Chodron says it's as if we spend our whole life walking around all tensed up like we're sitting in a dentist's chair. You know, something bad might happen, something bad might happen, something bad might happen. Compassion not possible when it's like that. How we meet this moment arising is the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. What's arising in this moment, as I hope you're getting out of our control, and for what Whatever's arising, there are valid causes and conditions. How do we know they're valid? Because this is what's happening. We can't change that because it's already happening. How our mind is meeting it is the place that's the movement from the habit of fear and aversion to the tenderness of compassion. So when you think you're sitting with a pain, a pain, a pain, it's not going away and I'm always in aversion, but you really look... And there's lots of moments. It's not an aversion. It's just with it. It's just calm. It's just peaceful. But then the aversion comes, or then you know all the, how can I fix it comes. But then there's some moments, it's calm, it's peaceful. Those are cultivating, developing, learning to trust more the power of compassion. It may not look like it much at first, read you a story from Milarepa. Remember, Guy talked about Milarepa, the Tibetan yogi with the calluses on his bum, right? So he was really one of the most famous and a great poet. So I'm, I'm going to really edit this severely, but one of his, there's like a thousand and one songs, of, many songs of Milarepa. So this is one story of what went on all those years he was sitting in the cave developing calluses. And I'll I'll read part of it and make my little editorial comments as we go along. Mila's mind became blissful, and he carried some wood back up to the cave. So this is like you in meditation. You've become blissful, and you come back in to sit. When he arrived there, he found in the cave seven metal demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, Some were grinding sampa barley flour, and some sat performing various magical tricks. So you get it? You come home all blissful, and here are the seven demons, and they've made themselves at home. (laughs) As soon as Mila saw them, he became frightened, right? So just like us, he became frightened. He meditated on his deity. He uttered a subjugating mantra, you know, very fearful mantra, performed a gaze, aroused his deity's presence. He brought in all his protectors. Then he meditated on compassion and friendliness. That's usually our order, isn't it? Then he meditated on compassion and friendliness, but was still unable to pacify them. So he thought, well, these might be local deities of the place. And although I've been here for months and years, I have not praised them. In other words, we haven't even recognized they're here. So he sang a song of praise, I'm cutting out because it's very long, and ends, you, you non-human demons assembled here are obstacles. Drink this cup of friendliness and compassion and be gone. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so three of them who were performing magic did go away, which unfortunately only you know, gives us the sense we can keep on trying like that. But he was unable to make the other four go away. So then he sang a song of confidence. So that's really like a song, you know, called up his faith. It's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. <laughs> and then, then three of the demons vanished like a rainbow. But he's slowly softening. But, you know, you can hear, right? Not quite. The remaining demon performed an imposing dance and Mila thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. So then he sang a song of a view, the pinnacle of his understanding, really going to the depth of his practice. Ending with, a demon like you does not intimidate me. If a demon like you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. So, demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. Ah, uh, I feel compassion for this spirit. Then he play, prays to Lord Darha, grant your blessings so that this lowly one may have complete compassion. Thus he sang, and with friendliness and compassion and without concern for his body, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but the demon could not eat him and so vanished like a rainbow. So the pinnacle of wisdom and compassion. But it's always the last resort of what we're used to. But here we're learning it right over and over again. So as I say this, the essence really of compassion is connection. Just this simple willingness to be present with a tender awareness as much as we can. Because then, you could call it bearing witness really. Bearing witness to our own difficulty, our own suffering, opens into others. James Baldwin has a line that I like very much. An enemy is someone whose story we have not heard. And I think that starts with our own suffering. When it's an enemy, it's someone, something whose story we have not heard. Same when it's projected outward to someone else. And so we start here with our own personal dukkha, in whatever form, physical, mental, emotional, just being able over and over to touch it, to be with it, to bear witness to it, not to make it go away. I mean, when we get to the compassion place, but just to be there. And it does open into a sense of connection with all beings, even if it's just that particular. And this sense of being able to be, say it's grief, or being with chronic illness, or the fear of some new and life-threatening illness, or the, you know, take your pick, loneliness, the, the sadness of those we love suffering, whatever your particular flavor is, just when we're able to be with it, to stop making it the enemy, to hear its story. It may not be that it seems like that's much compassion, but this being able to bear witness with us translates naturally into bearing witness, being present for others, going through that same suffering. And you can really feel, I can really feel the difference our compassion doesn't always mean we fix stuff, but it means we're able to stay there with an open, tender heart because we can be with our own suffering, we can be with others. So I've seen myself with sickness, with illness, with grief. You know when someone comes really well-intentioned, cares, wants to help, but doesn't have that, that ability to just t- touch with their own self the, the suffering, a little bit afraid of it, you know? Years ago, I had a chronic illness, and so many dear, wonderful people came with so many ideas about how to help, but I could really feel the people who wanted to help, but there's this, like, this level of fear, this level of basically get better so we don't have to be around this. I mean, that's crass, but it, you can just feel the discomfort. And then other people, same with grief, and then other people come and just know it's just how it is. I know how it is. I can be here with you. I don't have to fix it. You can feel that, that bearing witness. It's a powerful form of compassion. It doesn't mean we each have to go out and be Gandhi. But it starts by this being with what, whatever measure of suffering is arising in our mind and body now. But it can move to a much greater scale. I personally, uh, quite... I think the rest, this, the last little part of the talk, I think I'm just going to read a few uh, examples from other people because it's much, I say, much better and much deeper than I. But this sense of just bearing witness can move from our own personal being able to be with friends, with people who are suffering. And then when we're present with a, with a calm eye and heart, if there's something to do, we can see more clearly. Sometimes there's not. I think this bearing witness is something that often shows up in the realm of artists, you know, to to uh, to bear witness in um, large societal areas of horror. One example that I, I've always liked her a lot: the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, who was uh, one of the most famous poets in Russia of the 20th century. And she's mostly well-known because during the years of the Stalin terror, she could have emigrated. Many of the people she knew left Russia, but she chose not to. She chose to remain in her country, specifically to be a witness to the horrors of the Stalinist terror and the starvation, which she did experience. Her first husband was shot by, by Stalinist army. Her second Common law husband and her son were both imprisoned in the gulag for many, many years, and her second husband died in the, in the gulag. So it's not like she was some, you know, disconnected witness. Just want to read a little snippet from one of her longer poems, Requiem, um, 1935 to 1940. So it's a really long poem uh, about the years of this Stalin terror. just this little beginning, because it so touches me about just the power of being able to be present with an open heart, can, it can really make such a difference. It doesn't fix things. But this is uh, compassion as well. This is too beginning. She says, the beginning of the poem, Requiem, No foreign sky protected me, No stranger's wing shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, Survivor of that time, that place. And then this instead of a preface, she says. So, uh, in the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, when the most people were being arrested and sent off to the gulag or killed, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. That means anyone whose member of their family had been, they would just be disappeared in the night. You never knew where they were but they'd stand outside the prison in Leningrad all day every day hoping with packages hoping they could just get to the front of the line and give a package of food or something that they hoped would go to their loved one who they didn't even know if they were alive. So she's not exaggerating she spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad with you know hundreds and hundreds of other people. One day somebody in the crowd called me by name. She was a famous she was famous by this time. So, someone uh, called her by name. And standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, Can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Just that power to be present and communicate it because she was so present to us and we can hear it because it's natural aspect of our humanness to meet suffering with compassion. It's not some rarefied thing. When we're not lost in our own self-interest, that's what emerges, being fully present, bearing witness one aspect. One other aspect, I just want to. Two others. One is the complexity. When we do move into the realm of action, remembering that we start and keep coming back to the motivation of compassion, of wisdom first, rather than assessing by actions, because that's the best way we could act with the most wisdom in the complexity of life, right? It's knowing, as we're starting to know, we have no control of outcomes of any action that we perform. There's so much complications. We don't even have control of the outcomes of actions just about us, never mind in the, in the wider world or of other people's responses. So how to Act from the most wisdom and compassion and then not take it personally when it doesn't turn out how we want and not fall into despair or anger or hopelessness believe me I'm not saying I have this one licked I'm just bringing these up as as what is involved so one um, not simple but common for many people at least at my age uh, of a complexity is when how complex it is if you're designated as the medical proxy for somebody, say, for your elderly parents. That entails all kinds of decisions. You'll have no idea what they'll be, and they had no idea what they would be when they asked you to be it. You can never figure out what's going to come and what the decisions are going to be. And you never know. You make the decisions as best you can. You don't know sometimes of the best Decision you could make leads to a lot more suffering for a longer period of time. Really, how do you stay with that and stay open and present with the compassion and present with the suffering and not fall into self-judgment or want to turn away because it's too painful to watch? And I really see, I saw for myself, and I do this with both my parents, I saw for myself, when it's about me, there's no way to see clearly. If the decision is colored, you know, tinged by, I'm going to be uncomfortable, you know. That's what they think they want, but it's not what I think is the best for them. Or I know more than that, you know. It's like, or I just can't stand to see that, so even though they wanted that, I can't do it. All of that doesn't let you see clearly, you know. So it's just, it's a, not a simple example, but a common one that's very, very complex, And it's not like you say, okay, now I'll do it from compassion and it stays like that. We have to keep reconnecting, you know, keep seeing what's going on and have compassion when we blow it. We will because, of course, we won't have all the wisdom and then we'll fall into fear, we'll fall into overwhelm, we'll fall back into the habits of aversion or blame or whatever our habit is. Okay. Start suffering right there. We start again. We start again. We start again. But life is complex. So just trying to do the right thing without wisdom, you see how we can get lost. Or, and this is just more from the news, but how the idea of how a view, attachment to view, and trying to do the what's for the good of all, you know. Let's not even get into politics, but that's kind of where this goes. With views of, of for, for uh, caring for life. Okay, this is a bit of a... a A radical example, but where it can go, you have the view, people who are anti-abortion and then end up wanting to kill doctors who perform abortion. Yeah. Where can you, how can you get there from compassion? Compassion to one side and murder on the other side, held by view. So that's like falling into views, whereas the compassion is that, I'm not saying what's right or wrong, but compassion is coming back, coming back, coming back to see that the seed of action Comes from our intention, and our practice here, being with our own suffering, is how we keep on purifying the intention, finding the courage over and over. So I just want to read from two to three people, if I can do it in this time, who um, have this have examples of acting in the world over and over in very difficult and threatening situations. I'm not saying these three people are perfect or anything, but with the deep uh, wisdom of the power of compassion and love to counter terror and violence and fear, and then the need to keep reconnecting, repurifying. It's never a one-time thing. So these are just three, no, none of these people do I know, of course, but that have really inspired me over some years of reading about them. Let me see, where is this? Okay, so the first one is a man named James Lawson, who I read about a lot quite some years ago. And probably a lot of you know who he is. He's still he's a doctor of divinity, still now, he's 85 years old. But he is even now considered one of the leading theorists in this country on nonviolence uh, and nonviolent activism. And he was really one of the leaders in the, the, the whole civil rights movement starting in the 50s in this country, where he did huge trainings um, to all the freedom riders and a lot of the civil rights activists on non-violent uh, civil rights activism, really powerful. So he um, was a follower of Gandhi, and even during the Korean War, he was a conscientious objector he, just, he, he could have gotten out of going, he could have been deferred because he, he was a minister, but he said that wouldn't be fair. So he went to jail, you know, as a, a anti-war activist. And he said, I, oh, I turned on the radio one day and they were just interviewing somebody, I didn't know who it was. But I just started listening and halfway through I was listening, wow, that must be James Lawson, and it was. And I, I don't know, this was years ago, but I got so excited just hearing him and he was saying this is a quote from that i discovered a strength and power in me when he was in jail to live out of my own conscience and since you know since then he's also done he, he's continuing to teach lots of nonviolent workshops he's working for immigrant rights rights of palestinians workers rights to a living wage civil rights he's just involved in all kinds of causes and in teaching nonviolence so i want to read a little example of the simple but incredibly courageous and powerful way that he brings a sense of connection in in a really violent situation so this is a description that was given to the writer of this by uh, a person who was involved bernard lafayette so this was in nashville in 1960 during a demonstration for integration in, in Nashville. And so as the demonstrators were walking along, some young white toughs came and started like beating them up. And uh, Well, they, they grabbed the guy at the back and started beating on him. And Bernard Lafayette, who's telling this story, kind of threw himself over the guy to protect him. And all of these guys had been trained by James Lawson, who was there. So while this was going on, then, James, then Jim Lawson walked over he didn't rush over. He said he walked over very calmly, as if to a long-standing appointment. So when he arrived, that shifted the attention of the guys who were beating up to, to Lawson. And Bernard, remembered he just seemed so confident, so relaxed, as if this was just normal for him. And so the, the, the leader of the, the Tufts, when he saw Lawson, he got really enraged, obviously, at his coolness, and he spit on him. And so Lawson just looked at him and asked him for a handkerchief. The man, stunned, reached in his pocket and handed Lawson a handkerchief. And Lawson wiped himself off. Then he looked at the man, he's dressed in like this like leather motorcycle jacket gear. He looked at the man's jacket and started talking to him. Did he have a motorcycle or a hot rod car? A motorcycle was the answer. Jim asked a technical question or two, and the young man started explaining what he had done to customize his bike. Amazingly, Bernard thought, these two men were now talking about the levels of horsepower in motorcycles. A few seconds earlier, they had seemed to be sworn enemies. So by this time, the guys on the ground were up and walking, and the line was moving again, and Jim and the young man were still talking about the man's motorcycle. In that brief, frightening moment, Jim had managed to find a subject which they both shared— and had used it in a way that made each of them more human in the eyes of the other. I just find that so powerful in the simplicity of that connection, finding the humanness in such a difficult situation. And so the theory, again, of this is explained more from one of his students at that time, Um, John Lewis, who, as you know, probably know now, he's a congressman from Georgia, been so for many years, but he was one of the students, one of the original Freedom Riders. So this is from his autobiography, where he's describing, as he understands it, the principles of Gandhian nonviolent action, as he learned it from James Lawson. So one of the most fundamental principles of Gandhian notion of satyagraha, nonviolent action, he said, it is not just a technique to achieve specific goals. It's not just a tool to achieve unity and freedom in the world around us. True Satyagraha, as Gandhi taught it, is about a fundamental shift inside our own souls. It is rooted in the qualities of inner unity, of inner freedom, of inner certainty. I mean, that's like Inner unity is concentration, inner freedom is wisdom, inner certainty is faith. It's the same thing. And once found, that place is not disturbed or affected by the thousands of details of the world around us that bombard us every day. And then to bring in his suffering, he says, suffering puts us and those around us in touch with our consciences, It opens and touches our heart. It makes us feel compassion where we need to. But suffering can be nothing more than a sad and sorry thing without the presence on the part of the sufferer of a graceful heart, an accepting and open heart, a heart that holds no malice towards the inflictors of his or her suffering. This is a difficult concept to understand And it is even more difficult to internalize, but it has everything to do with the way of nonviolence. We are talking about love here, not romantic love, not the love of one individual for another, not loving something that is lovely to you. This is broader, deeper, more all-encompassing love. It is a love that recognizes the spark Of the divine in each of us, even in those who would raise their hand against us, those we might call our enemy. This sense of love realizes that emotions of the moment and constantly shifting circumstances can cloud that divine spark. Pain, ugliness, and fear can cover it over, turning a person toward anger and hate. It is the ability to see through those layers of ugliness to see further into a person than perhaps that person can see into themselves, that is essential to the practice of nonviolence. That's like one of the most profound things I've read about compassion and wisdom. Well, I had one other, a guy from Burma, but it's a little long and I think I'll just end here. So, thank you. So let's just sit quietly with a graceful heart for a moment.